The reading is from James, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. But as we come to God's word in James chapter 5, let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of the troubles and the suffering in our lives, you are not silent. We thank you that you have words for us, and we pray that we would hear those words today. We pray that we would receive everything that we need to receive from you today, whether that is comfort, whether that is challenge, whether that's change. Lord, whatever it is, please work by your spirit now as I speak, and as we all hear your word together. Help us to hear you, Lord. Amen. So is Jesus going to do anything about my pain? This is the big question that James has been tackling in James chapter 5. Now, throughout the whole letter, he's had a very deep concern for those who have hard lives, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, for the suffering. But in chapter 5, he finally comes into land and speaks to these people directly, and that includes us. And what does Jesus have to say as he speaks through James, though? What does Jesus have to say about suffering? Is he going to do anything about our pain? And in the first half of chapter 5, you may remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, but in the first half of chapter 5, the answer is yes, but you're going to have to wait. Yes, but be patient. Wait for the day that Jesus will come back and he will make everything all right. In chapter 5, verse 7, he pictures that as like a farmer waiting patiently for the autumn and the spring rains that help the land to yield its valuable crops. Wait for the rain. That was the message of the first half of this chapter And it seems to me too close to be a coincidence that just a few verses later, he is again talking about rain and crops. He tells the story of how the Old Testament prophet Elijah, uh, which Mike kind of recapped for us earlier, Elijah prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. It's the same picture, but notice the difference. The first time the farmer is waiting for the rain. This time Elijah is praying for the rain. 
And his prayer is answered. So which is it? Is it wait for Jesus to come and bring an end to suffering? Or or is it, if we ask, he will help sooner? Will Jesus end our suffering now? Or only when he comes? So you have that complexity, that tension within this chapter. But we also have to tread carefully because this is not just an academic exercise for us, is it? It's a tender topic, I think, for all of us. And if it hasn't become that, it very before long will. Some of us are here in the midst of sickness, of suffering, either our own or for our loved ones. Some of us have been crying out in prayer for years for help, for healing, but haven't seen it. So we need to be gentle here. We need to be careful to hear God, to really listen to what God is and isn't saying about prayer to us here. James tells us in verse 16 that the powerful, effective prayer, the prayer that works, is the prayer of a righteous person. So if we're thinking about effective prayer, if we're thinking about prayers being answered, our starting point has to be, before we even get to the prayer itself, our starting point has to be, how can we be righteous? How can we be the righteous people? To answer that, James, in these verses, in verse 13 to 20, gives us two attitudes, two kind of states of mind or postures of the heart that the righteous person has. Two things that should accompany the prayer of the righteous person as we pray in suffering. And the first of these, the first attitude of the righteous person is to pray with faith. It tells us in verse 15, the prayer that is offered in faith will make the sick person well. You see, the real power in prayer is not so much in the process in and of itself. The power of prayer is the one that we're praying to. The one we have faith in. The one we are trusting to answer our requests. So to pray in faith, it means to come with our requests into the presence of a God who we know. A God who we know and trust. A God who has shown us how much he loves us. He's shown us his character. He's shown us his intentions for us. He's, he's done that. He's come to be one of us. He's come to die for us. He's come to defeat death and sin for us. And he's done that. That's who we are praying in faith to, to a God who has proven his desire to defeat sickness and death. He's proven his ability to defeat sickness and death. And so if we have faith in this God, if we have faith in Jesus, prayer is going to follow on naturally from that. Just as our friendships are expressed in sharing our lives with our friends through conversation, so our faith in God is expressed in conversation with God. And that's the baseline that that runs all the way through this passage, is that all Christians pray. That if we have faith in Jesus, we are praying. 
at all times, not just when life is hard, not just when we're in trouble. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Just like when we talk to our friends, the content of the conversation changes. The content of our prayers may change when our situation changes. But there's still prayer. Whether our prayers are joyful songs or desperate groans, Christians are praying. And then James kind of zooms in on a specific example of the elders of the church praying for someone who is sick. Now, we are all to pray for ourselves. We're all to pray for each other. Um, but it's especially part of the role of the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, to, to not just lead by teaching, but to lead the church in praying for the church, which we as elders do. We do this. Uh, we each pray for you uh, when we're on our own. And when we get together to meet, we're regularly praying. We're, we're praying through a page of the members list each time we meet. We we're praying for anyone we know in the church who's in particular trouble. We're, we're praying, praising God for anything that there is in the church to rejoice for. And against that, that kind of backdrop, that general backdrop of ongoing prayer in the church, James gives this example in verse 14. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. It seems to me James is talking about someone who's very sick. Um, here there are a couple of clues that they call the elders of the church to come to them. They are not, seem perhaps not able to go to the elders themselves. The elders are praying over them, suggesting that the person is perhaps lying down, unable to get up. Now, I don't think those are hard and fast criteria that he's giving us here, but they do suggest that this is a serious situation, that this is something chronic or, or perhaps life-threatening, something beyond the usual wear and tear of life in a fallen world. And we also do this at Eden. The elders will do this. If you ever are at that point of being seriously ill, please do call the elders and we will do this. But as I read these couple of verses, a couple of questions come to my mind about what's going on here. The first is about anointing with oil. Why? What's that there for? And the second is, of course, the big one. Will it work? Why isn't everyone healed when we pray for them? Let's start with the first of those. Why anoint with oil? What a strange thing to do. Now, to understand this, I think we need to kind of back up a bit. And this part may seem a little bit abstract at first, but it's going to become quite important as we go on. And to understand anointing, we need to start with who we are, with how God has made us as human beings. What, what, what is it to be a human? What is a human? We're not just physical beings. We're not just biological machinery. There is more to us than that. 
equally, we're not just souls. We're, we're not just floating around like ghosts. We're both of those. We're embodied souls. We are souls that are in bodies. So we each exist at this connection point between two worlds, between the physical, material world, which we exist in, but we also exist at the same time in an invisible, spiritual world. And we each exist at this kind of connection point between those two equally real worlds. It's just trying to think of how, how to kind of picture this. And it's kind of like a smartphone. You have a smartphone, right? And it is a physical object that you can touch. You can pick it up, you put it down, you can drop it. But it's also a connection point to another world, to, to a kind of in, immaterial, invisible world, to the non-physical world of the internet. And it's, it kind of connects those two worlds for us. And sort of like this, our lives are lived in these two worlds at the same time. Not separately, but, but interactively, there's a back and forth. Spiritual things in our lives can affect our physical things in our lives, and the physical can affect the spiritual. And because we live in both of these worlds at the same time, God can often meet us and deal with us in both of these worlds at the same time. He can give physical things a spiritual significance. So he does that with the sacrifices in the Old Testament, or in in the New Testament, he does that with Baptism or with communion, which we'll share later, these are, are physical things, often very ordinary physical things that God has matched up to unseen spiritual things. Even Jesus' death is like this. Jesus' death was a physical, visible, historical event. But it was also tied to an invisible event. To, to something that was happening at the same time in the spiritual world as Jesus was bearing all of the judgment for our sins on our behalf. And so coming back to anointing with oil with that kind of background in mind, that's what God is doing here. He is tying the physical and the spiritual together for us. He's giving us something that we can see to express something spiritual that he's asking us to see. By faith. And so anointing is expressing God's assurance that He will be with this person that we're praying for, that He'll be with them in a special way. When God says to anoint someone, He's saying that they belong to Him, that, that He's marked them out, that He's going to bless them, that He's going to use them. Now, if you look at verse 14, our uh, NIV translation, it connects prayer to anointing with the word and. In the original, it's probably a little, a little bit less like pray and anoint, and more like pray anointing as they do so. The, the praying is the main action. If you imagine that in kind of bold type, pray, and as you do that, anoint. So anointing is something in the physical world that's attached to that, that really important, the major event, that, that, that spiritual activity of prayer. 
It's attached as a visible sign of our trust that God is going to answer our prayers. That brings us to the second question. Is he? Will God answer? If we pray in faith, why isn't everybody healed? Because then if, if, if we don't see healing, if we pray and we don't see healing, we're left with all kinds of unhelpful questions. Did I not pray in faith? Did, did the elders not pray in faith? If I don't have faith, am I even a Christian? Or, or is it God's promises that are unreliable? If this one is unreliable, what about his other promises? And it launches us into this whole downward spiral away from prayer and away from faith. And I've seen it happen to, to dear friends of mine who've been scarred by unanswered prayers. I think part of the problem here is taking this promise that God makes just on its own and in isolation from the rest of the Bible and even from the rest of what James says. So this promise sounds different when we look back to what James said in chapter 4, verse 15, where he said, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. When Jesus prayed the night before he died, he cried out to be spared the suffering, to, to, to not have to go through the physical pain and the spiritual suffering of the cross. But he added to his prayer, but not what I will, Father, what you will. I do not think that if anyone ever prayed in faith, it was Jesus on that night. Yet it was the Father's will that Jesus suffer. Even as Jesus prayed with faith in his Father's plan, he knew that plan included his suffering and his death. And so we need to remember when we're, we're praying in faith, we're praying to a personal God. To, to a father in heaven with his own will, with a will of his own that is wise and that is good, that he knows far more than us about what is good for us. And it's often God's will to work not by leading us away from suffering, at least not straight away, but by leading us through suffering and pain to something better on the other side by allowing it to continue for a while, not forever, but for a while, so that something great might be achieved through it. Not that the suffering itself is a good thing, but that God works good things in us and through us as we call on him in the depths of our prayer, of our, our prayer while we're in pain. So we pray to God in suffering. We think of him as, as like a, a, he's wielding suffering in our lives, like a surgeon's knife, cutting, but cutting with skill, cutting with the intention and the skill 
to do lasting good. That's one thing to keep in mind. Another is that James' James' promise also sounds different in in light of what he said in this chapter, in chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Malachi tells us, on that day, on that day, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. But it's only on that day that death and pain are over forever. Even those that Jesus healed miraculously in the Gospels, they died again. And even if Jesus were to heal all your pain and your sickness today, the day when you face your death will still come. There is no true, full, lasting escape from suffering until Jesus returns. There is no full, complete, permanent healing until Jesus returns. Any physical healing now is never going to be ultimate for us, and we're wrong to think that it would be, that it would solve all our problems if this sickness were taken away. Jesus may heal us now. He may do that as a, as a foretaste, as a reminder to help us as we wait for the lasting healing that comes when he returns. But as we wait, we can think, if, if God brought good through Christ's suffering, could he not do it through mine too? Isn't it after, often after passing through the toughest of seasons in life that we see that when we've emerged, actually we've grown closer to Christ in ways that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Or we've been used powerfully to help others to know Jesus in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. But with all that said, I don't want to take away from what James has said here. I don't want to qualify God's promise so much that it ends up meaning nothing, that it ends up just kind of a hollowed-out shell, a burned-out car with no engine, no wheels. This is a promise to get in and drive, to, to go and pray with faith in Jesus. It might not take us on the route that we expect, but it will lead us to healing. Jesus may heal immediately. He may do that. He's no less powerful than he was 2,000 years ago. He may heal immediately. He may heal over a course of years. He may heal by blessing the work of medical professionals and carers, or he may work outside of that. Or he may leave us with a thorn in the flesh so that we can learn to lean on him. We can learn his grace is enough. To pray in faith is to look to Jesus in our suffering, to look to him, to come before him with our pain and say, Jesus, can you do something about this? And to look to him as one who has proven 
his desire and his power to do something about this. And trust in his answer. Trust in his timing. Trust in his way. As we look to do that, we we look to meet Jesus. We look to know him more. We look to be more ready for his return. And sometimes the miraculous healing will do that for us, but sometimes not. Sometimes someone can be healed and physically they're better, but there's no spiritual change. And in fact, they've not been challenged. They've not grown any closer to Christ. And that brings us to kind of the second half of this. Because our biggest problem is not physical sickness, is not physical death. That's why James goes on to say in verse 15, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So he ties together confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other. And Notice he's moved as well from the elders praying to the church praying now. And from, from praying with faith to, to the second key attitude of the righteous person, praying with repentance. And we're back to that connection between the physical and the spiritual. Because James has made a link here between sickness, illness, a physical problem, and sin, a spiritual problem. He wants to see us healed of all of it. He wants healing for our bodies, yes, but more than that, for our souls too. He has a holistic, a complete goal when he's looking for healing, when he's asking God to heal us. I said earlier that sometimes our spiritual lives can have a knock-on effect on our physical lives. And that's James's point here. Now, yes, there is a category for the innocent sufferer. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. But there is also the category or the case of the Christians in Corinth. The city of Corinth, uh, Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, and he says, some of you are weak and ill. And the word he uses for ill is the same one that James has used. He says they're ill because they have been taking communion in an unworthy way. And that the illness is the Lord's discipline for this. So that they won't be finally condemned. And not every sickness is the Lord's discipline. For sin. But sometimes it is. And sometimes God allows sickness into our lives to warn us of the danger. He allows that, that physical sickness as a picture of the seriousness of the spiritual sickness of sin and the spiritual death at the end of that road. 
if you were asleep and your house were on fire, wouldn't you want someone to wake you up so you could get out, so you could get to safety? And would you mind if they didn't do that by gently tapping you on the shoulder or whispering in your ear? Would you really mind? Wouldn't wouldn't it be okay in that situation if they slapped you in the face or poured a glass of water over you? Normally those things, not okay. But if that's what it takes to wake you up, that that changes the rules a little bit. Isn't a little discomfort for a short time worth it to avoid the more serious danger? If it helps us escape an eternity of spiritual suffering and judgment for our sins, a few years of physical suffering suddenly looks quite different. And so could it be, if we are sick, that God has allowed this into our lives to get our attention, to wake us up to the house that is on fire? Sickness might not be because of sin, and if you are going to visit someone who is sick, it is not the first thing to say. But eventually it has to be part of the conversation. At some point, it has to come up to at least ask the question because sin that we don't deal with can hinder our prayers. But in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now righteous here, it doesn't mean the person is perfect or complete, it's someone who's brought their sins before Christ, brought their sins into the light of Christ, someone who's confessed and been forgiven and is now righteous in God's sight, is clothed in Christ, and is seeking to live, to grow in to what they have been made, to live righteously. And James gives the example of the prophet Elijah. He emphasizes Elijah's relatability. It would be so easy for, and, and a lot of people in James's time would have perhaps elevated Elijah in their, their minds to this kind of spiritual superhero almost. And so they would see Elijah's prayers as unattainable, as just unattainable spiritual superheroics. But that's not how James talks about it. In verse 17, he says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. James is encouraging us, answered prayers, Even big prayers are not out of reach for us. But we have to start by seeking righteousness, by cultivating these attitudes in our heart of faith 
and of repentance. And repentance for James is not just an inward spiritual activity. For James, it has to also be outward. It has to also be physical. As we confess our sins to each other alongside praying for each other. And he does this because it is so easy to fool ourselves when this is all just in our inner lives. It's all just going on in our hearts, in, in, in our heads. And we're praying, but we can so easily fool ourselves that as we're confessing to God, and we have no real intention of leaving our sins behind. Whatever those areas in our lives where we're turning from God, where we're going a different way to where he's told us to go. We can pray and confess those, but it's so easy to just pick it up again the next day. We end up with a kind of double-mindedness in our prayer where we want the benefits, we want the blessings of a life with God, of the, of the righteous person and the prayer being answered. We want that, but we also don't want to let go of the instant gratification of the life lived apart from God. And one of the things that, that church can do for us is to give us an accountability about that. To, to confess to each other so that they, they can then follow up and say, how are you doing with that one? Are, are you still struggling with that? Is there anything that we need to put in place to help you uh, not turn back to that? Are you making use of church in that way? Is that, is that part of the dynamic of your friendships here that you're, you're praying for one another but also confessing to one another? And James finishes the letter with a call to be proactive in this. To, to be a community where we, we don't just confess, but we also urge each other to confess. If, some, if someone is not confessing, it's okay to say to them, there's sin in your life here, this, this needs dealing with. Now, of course, we, we can go to extremes But, but in avoiding the extreme of, of being overly critical and, and unaware of our own sin, we shouldn't swing to the other extreme of saying nothing. As James says in verse 19, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way, will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, of course, it's God who saves. It's Christ's death on the cross which really covers the sins. It's the Spirit entering hearts which really brings faith to a person. But God works through our words. That's why James is so often on about telling us to watch our words. And so often we can be very British about sin. We can grumble about it in private. We can perhaps elevate that to the level of gossip. But to the person we say nothing for fear of an awkward confrontation. 
But just imagine, however many years in the future, when Jesus has returned, when you are there in the new creation with him, and you bump into someone, and they say to you, thank you for calling out that sin. If you hadn't, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here today. I, I have, I now am here. I have an infinite number of days. I am fully healed. I am made perfect. I'm in the presence of God and all his people. And I get to be here because you took the trouble to tell me that the path that I was on was a path to death. Just imagine that. Imagine having that conversation in the new creation. Imagine having that conversation with two people, or with three, or why not four people, or why not the whole church? Doesn't that change the way you look at it? James just stops there. He doesn't sign off the letter. He doesn't give a closing greeting or anything like that. But in many ways, I think these last two verses sum up what he has been doing for us through this whole letter. He's been trying to bring us back. James is often a hard letter to read. He, he often challenges us. He calls out those subtle sins in our lives that we would rather stay hidden. He's doing that to bring us back to Christ. He wants to see our sins covered by the death of Christ. He wants to have that conversation with us in heaven where we say to him, thank you, James, for calling out that sin. You were right. He wants to see us raised. He wants to see us healed on the day Jesus returns. And what if we were all a little bit more like James in that? What if we all committed to wanting this for each other? How would that change the feel of our conversations after the service? If we said, okay, now we are going to confess our sins to one another. We're going to encourage each other to confess. We're going to pray for one another. What if we all had that shared goal as a church, to be righteous in Christ together. To pray with faith and with repentance. To urge one another to, to leave the bad behind, to press on and look to Christ. And what do you think that would do to our prayers? Do you not think we would see more of our big prayers answered? Let me just leave you with that thought. Wouldn't you like to find out? Shall we pray? Father, we confess this is a hard topic for us. It is not easy to suffer. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know that. You know the depths of suffering far beyond what we will ever know. You understand. 
Lord, we pray that you would return soon. Lord, we are groaning for your return and everything that it brings, everything that it means for us. But as we wait, Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our prayers, in our songs of praise, yes, but also in our cries of agony. We pray that we would know you through all this. For your glory. Amen.